0: It's important to say before we get started that the opinions given by Dr. Elms are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of any other agency or institution. Furthermore, it's equally important to say that when he talks about clinical protocols and approaches, that before any changes are made, you need to speak to your individual provider.
1: I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with my colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss. The topic at hand E-R-A-S, RS, and the positive implications that RS has, looking at the specific lens of the opioid epidemic. Joining us to share his expertise on the topic is Dr. Luke Elms, a board-certified general surgeon at Orlando Health. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Elms. Welcome to the program. Let's talk about ERAS, or E-R-A-S. Where did that all come from? How did you get involved in, in your enthusiasm for this?
2: ERAS, or Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, that has been around for a long time and developed by the work of many dedicated clinicians over the past few decades. It really came into my focus back in 2016 when I was working on a right care initiative to try to implement that, make an evidence-based approach. To the way we were taking care of mostly colon patients who are having surgery. It has many tenants. A lot of those have been applied widely beyond just colon surgery and things such as the use of minimally invasive technique, if possible, giving people more oral intake leading up to surgery, specifically giving people a carbohydrate drink a couple hours before procedure that we know help prevent ileus and also help with their insulin regulation. A lot of non-opioid medications are utilized. I think a little bit of a misunderstanding, in today's common discussion around ERAS protocols, and that is that it is supposed to be one of the tools in our toolbox to treat pain. In regards to the ERAS protocol, the reason it was utilized is because one of the main risk factors for delaying people's recovery or slowing people's recovery down is the development of an ileus. ERAS helps decrease those risks.
1: Then would you say that this is perhaps a silver lining of that approach in terms of relevance to the opioid epidemic?
2: I think that when we treat the acute Pain caused by surgery, utilizing all the tools in our toolbox and not just an opioid. Many people don't require as many opioids. Sometimes the ERAS protocol gets lumped in with a very anti-opioid backlash. And so people try to paint it as as an end-all be-all replacement for opioids, just another tool.
0: One of the things we hear is that people will say that they had no opioid problem until they had some dental surgery or other surgery put on pain medicines, perhaps legitimately at the beginning. And it went completely out of control. So it's nice to hear that you're dealing with this in advance. One of the things that I found fascinating is the amount of preparation before surgery to help people prepare for surgery metabolically. And one of the things that was listed was counseling. It seems so logical. It just seems such a logical direction to go in. How is it being accepted? Is it more the rule? Is it not the rule? Are people being hesitant about changing the old typical ways that we all learned that surgery should be done? What are your thoughts about that?
2: In general, ERAS protocols are becoming common. The tenets of that are being expanded well beyond just colon or bowel surgery. The idea of preoperatively optimizing someone's people refer to it prehab, setting yourself up for success, that is a very hot topic right now. A lot of people are already utilizing that a lot. I utilize preoperative mental health services as needed if I think someone is going to have a hard time with the stress and strain of the surgery. I perform surgery every day. For a patient, that could be a -a once-in-a-lifetime or very few-in-a-lifetime situation. Coming in to remove a gallbladder or fix a hernia is just a normal day for me. That is a potentially life-altering situation for a person on the other side of the knife. To get them into a situation where you've set them up to be successful is very important. There is a misconception out there that minimally invasive means no pain. There's also the misconception that utilization of non-opioid medications means that you're not going to have pain or that you're not going to still require an opioid. Letting somebody know how much pain should they expect? What is a normal amount of pain to feel? Where are you going to feel the pain? How long can you expect to still feel this? For certain procedures, what's the risk of chronic pain like hernia surgery? We know that has around 10% risk of chronic pain. And that's something that we need to talk about so that they know what they're getting into. I've had numerous patients that have very, very difficult times handling the stress of surgery. But we know that the experience of pain is so multifactorial, and it's really a holistic experience that to think that someone's stress or anxiety surrounding what's going on isn't going to affect how they perceive and experience pain or handle the pain is just foolish. We know better.
1: How often would you say you come across patients who actually avoid needed surgery because of their fear, their anxiety of the pain levels, and then in light with some of these newer approaches, some concern that maybe they're not going to get enough pain medicine?
2: that is becoming a big problem. I've also talked to patients who are in recovery from a substance use disorder who are concerned about exposure. I try to empower them to make the choice for themselves. We utilize all of the non-opioid methods. Ultimately, it's up to them. If some patients we have are just like, I want my pain control, completely reasonable. I've had other patients who tell me, I want no opioid, period. I'll deal with whatever it is. And ultimately, we're always there if they have a change of heart and and things like that. You have to empower those patients. I think now doing what a lot of people refer to as opioid free is very in vogue right now. And I think that if you can achieve compassionate pain control in patients, especially acute pain, and I think that opioid minimization and utilization of non-opioid medications is a great thing to utilize the goal should be compassionate pain control. If we are sacrificing compassionate pain control at the idea that we're going to cause more harm than good, ultimately, our goal as physicians should be to provide compassionate pain control at the lowest risk possible and progressing up the chain of medications. Realistically, the chances of someone who is in acute pain who is an opioid-naive person that goes through an acute pain event, such as a surgery, requires the use of opioids, and goes on to develop a dependence, is actually fairly low. Very low, in fact, in some studies. The bigger risk is with overprescribing. But as we have pulled back so hard on prescribing, I worry that we have a mismatch on who we're really targeting. So I think that at times, we can end up with the best of intention to try and reduce people's exposure to opioids. Sometimes we leave chronic pain patients, palliative care patients, and even at times acute pain patients as collateral damage in this battle. At times we were prescribing well above what they utilized. We know that many patients sometimes left over 50% of the pain medications we prescribed after surgery went unused. That was a very different time. So I think it's important that we have a very measured response and treat pain as what it is. The goal, again, should be compassionate pain control, starting with the lowest risk and proceeding up. The beauty of a multimodal approach, which ERAS promotes, the beauty of that is sometimes what we find when you utilize all of the other tools to their maximum capability in a very organized way, take specific time to educate patients on how to utilize them appropriately and safely, that a lot of times the amount of opioids we need to achieve our goal can be much lower. And so historically, patients that have been exposed to opioids now are able to achieve the ultimate goal with much less exposure. But that doesn't mean that that's a replacement. And I think we have to really be cautious that we aren't leaving people in pain Because at this time, leaving people in pain is not a solution
1: to the problem. And how often are patients left in an excessive amount of pain driven to alternative approaches to solving that pain control, going to the streets perhaps looking for illicit medication?
2: I have a very close friend. He called me and he knows I do work in this field and by no means am an expert as much as a lot of people are out there. He knew I do work in this and he had severe back spasms and was having some back arthritis type situation. He went to an urgent care center and they gave him some non-opioid medications and said, we don't prescribe opiates. He came home and he told me in his mind, the non-opioids weren't going to be enough. So he didn't even really utilize them. He went to a friend and got some Loratab and he took some Loratab and he felt better. In the past, when we were having over 3 billion pills per year left over, you know, you could feel as, a, as much statistically, there's a much higher chance that what he was taking was an actual Loratab. But in today's day and age, that's not necessarily the case. Seeking that in that way is much higher risk than it would be if we educated him on the validity of utilizing multiple other medications. That's a very high risk way to achieve pain control. And many times we don't address people's pain. We don't address it directly and we're not addressing it compassionately. At times, the risk that we're putting people out may be higher than the risk we would be putting people out by exposing them to an opiate. So there's a very strong discussion that needs to be had. I hope we don't overcorrect into a situation where all of a sudden now patients that need good pain control and compassionate pain control aren't able to access it because we've pulled back on the wrong population.
0: Do you make this line of questioning a routine pre-surgical requirement? you have the anesthesiologists do it? Social workers do it? Is there, in your protocol, is it to be expected that someone is going to talk about pain or does it
2: come up more casually? That comes from me and that comes directly. I have that direct conversation. I say the words to my patients, every single patient. I'm sure there's some that I miss. The majority of patients, I say, this is going to cause pain. This is going to hurt. Because I think that's the baseline. Expectation makes a big difference. The example I always use is, if I get up in the middle of the night and stump my toe, I'm rolling around because there's a difference in the expectation of the experience of pain. Giving people an idea of what to expect can sometimes help by itself. But what I tell them is, here's the protocol that we use. We utilize non-opioids the majority of the time. I say, I want you to take these kind of around the clock to start. Don't wait for your pain to get out of control. That's not the goal. You want to have a baseline. I say, these are very low risk. I question all of them if they're candidates because to say that the non-opioid pain medications don't have their own risk profiles, I have a series of questions I go through to assess they are candidate for the protocol. I say, listen, we want to take these around the clock. I talk to them about the muscle relaxant that we use. That muscle relaxant causes some sedating effects. When I really started talking to patients, when they would come back, many of them were taking them at night so that they could sleep, which is a completely reasonable thing. What I've told patients now is I say, try this medication. It does have some sedating effects and it may actually help accomplish the same goal, but reduce things like constipation. I do a lot of, of abdominal surgery. When you're recovering, being constipated or having nausea vomiting, having a strain to have a bowel movement, those are very painful events. So anything that we can do to try and reduce that is important. Everybody i talk to, I tell you do this. A lot of times you don't need as many opioids but that we still get routinely give people a rescue medication. And what we use in our practice is tramadol or oxycodone. And the difference, we've been able to significantly reduce the strength. We were able to come down from oxy to tramadol in the majority of our patients. Then also we were able to significantly reduce quantity. And that probably has as big of an impact on the overall epidemic as anything because having less divertible medication is ideal as long as you're treating every patient's pain. It should be noted that if I have a patient that is on chronic pain medications and has a pain management physician that they see regularly, I actually defer the management of their opiate to their pain management physician. And I have them go and get a clearance, if you will, or at least a, have an informed discussion with the their physician so that they can adjust their requirements accordingly, because we're going to be causing an, an acute pain event on top of maybe their chronic baseline. So their requirements may be different than someone who is otherwise opioid naive. And it's important to take that into effect. But I still, if they are a candidate, I still utilize non-opioids because ultimately the goal should be the best pain control possible at the lowest risk possible.
1: So do you deal with some specific stacking regimens?
2: Uh, stacking regimens as in, as in multiple medications at the same time? Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, one of the main things that we struggle with is the regimen that we use is more time consuming and it's more difficult to manage for a patient. One of the benefits of an opiate as your sole source of pain control in the recovery from surgery is that it's a single prescription for the physician to write, and it's a single pill essentially for the patient to take. When I utilize the multimodal approach on all of my patients, not just my colon patients, many times they were coming back with full or almost full bottles of their opiate left. Really, the light bulb went off. Now This has a lot of power. When I first implemented this, this was not implemented in response to the opioid epidemic. This was implemented because patients recovered faster with less complications. They required so many fewer that we were able to pull back on what we were prescribing. We stacked multiple medications on top of one another there's the old idea that you have to alternate ibuprofen and tylenol and that that's the only way that it works every three hours it's the pharmacology of that is that really necessary what i heard most of, well what are you going to do in three hours if they're in pain my answer to that was well, when we give it to them at the same time they're not in pain in three hours that was the difference. We never really encountered that problem. My goal was to have them make the protocol as easy as possible. What we found is the patients that didn't do well in the protocol, a large majority of the time, because they were unintentionally non-compliant with the protocol. They had every intention to be compliant, but when you're in pain, you're undergoing the stress of a surgery, you're recovering from a general anesthetic, and then someone hands you six prescriptions, that's a lot. That's a lot to handle. The thing that made the biggest difference in our practice is I set out on of making very specific patient education for our specific protocol to the very first patient I gave it to. He came back two days after surgery, completely out of control pain. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And I went and talked to him. He was not taking the protocol, not even close, like way off what I was trying. I literally took the paper in there and I said, what would I have needed to put on this for you to understand now what we have discussed? I gave him a pen and he wrote a couple of very Simple changes. And I said, that makes a lot of sense. Something that I do every day, something that may be intuitive to me, is not intuitive to everybody. And so I actually made those changes. I didn't even change what he said. I literally just took it, made the changes, started handing it out. We haven't had that problem since. You're partnering with them, trying to change the paradigm because ultimately, many patients have had surgery before. And if you told them, we're not going to prescribe you, Percocet, they're very nervous about that. The key thing is you have to have that conversation and they have to know that if they call you in pain, you have to respond. You can't just say, tough it out.
0: I find it very encouraging that a surgeon, you reach out to the patient, you talk to them.
2: And that's one
0: of the medications, shall we say, that's stacked on top of everything else or maybe underneath everything else. When people have a sense of what to expect, and I know I'm repeating what you said, but it's powerful. They feel like they're part of the process. They're part of the team. The resident's going to come in and talk to you about the pain management, and anesthesia is going to take it, or we'll get you to an outpatient doctor. And it's like, no. And they just feel ungrounded and they're being treated mechanically and that's what you're saying is changing in surgery and i'm very pleased to hear that from a psychiatric point of view i see the people who get into trouble because they're not prepared and their life is not modifiable if it needs to be modified as a result of the surgery.
2: So good stuff. I like this. Discussing surgery and discussing ERAS and discussing multimodal pain protocol, especially anytime you try to discuss opioid minimization, there's an idea people can get lumped into an anti-opioid narrative that is not necessarily true. Because I think if we focus on to the individual patient, we provide that specific patient the pain control that they need. They have a relationship with the physician that they know if they are in out of control pain, the physician's gonna take them seriously and do everything he can to remedy that. You do a good job of setting people up for success. Tolerance of pain can be incredible. had patients that come to my clinic that have had previous difficulties with opiates, and they say, I'm not using an opioid, period. I say, that's your decision. Some of those patients go through very painful things and do fine. The anxiety, the mental health aspect of this about undergoing a potentially traumatic event, not just on the body, but on the mental health aspect of it, if you have an anxiety that the person that that you're putting your life in their hands isn't going to take you seriously afterwards, or isn't going to respect your personal experience, that is a setup for someone to have poor pain control, even in the setting of someone still getting the, the protocol. Because again, pain is so
1: multifactorial. ERAS itself is a just slow process getting this accepted.
2: Tenants of ERAS are becoming commonplace. There are obviously people that hold out. And uh, there are people that are very, very advanced in what they're doing, even more so than what we're doing. we did not invent this. We utilize it very strongly, and I'm a big vocal supporter of that. At the end of the day, if people are doing something that has significantly better outcome than the status quo, over time, we're all three physicians. We know how long it takes people to really buy into new thought over time that, that shift happens somewhat naturally. Because at the end of the day, the overwhelming majority of physicians just want their patients to do well in regards to pain control. Historically, there's been a fear of under-treating and wanting to avoid leaving someone with poorly controlled pain. Now, I fear that we are so focused on over-treating or over-prescribing. The pendulum can swing so far the other direction that we end up no better off than we were, just in a different way. So I think the ERAS is going to be, become even more commonplace. I would say the vast majority of surgeons incorporate at least some tenant of ERAS in their practice.
1: Do you think the resistance is somewhat generational? Think back in medical school when the old surgeons, who were probably not as old as I am now, but the guys who were old in the operating room, they were doing stuff that just seemed kind of archaic and they didn't want to change. I remember one guy would clamp off every little bleeder. And there was another surgeon doing colon resections and they'd open up colon and peas and carrots would come spilling out into the peritoneum and he'd say, oh, I'm not worried because we're in the antibiotic era now. It just seemed kind of funny some of the comments some of the older doctors were making. Is that an area of resistance also to changing
2: I would honestly say that the resistance to changing of dogma is a phenomenon that happens irrespective of age. <laughs> and so I think a lot of it's how you were trained. Many people, if they have good outcomes, it's hard to convince people if overwhelmingly their patients are doing well that doing something that may improve things. They're not seeing that very frequently or seeing that problem. It's hard to make that, that argument. There are holdouts. There are old school many of them, the reason that they still do it that way is because they have very good outcomes that way. Power our tool. Whatever worked for them and what has worked, I think a lot of times it's hard to change that because at some point they say, well, my patients are doing pretty good. Why would I change this? One of the reasons that I looked at changing what I was doing is my patients didn't look like they were feeling good when they came back. You know, they were asking for refills of Percocet because at the time, all I really prescribed was Percocet and post-op pain control. And they were asking for refills of Percocet and they just were feeling not great. We were getting a bunch of calls about constipation and bloating. Well, was the last time in a bowel? Four days ago. That, that makes you feel bad whether you had surgery or not. And so those were the reasons that I looked at changing. It's also important to note that when I started using ERAS in my practice, I was only using it on the colon patients. The light bulb going off in my head was when colon patients came back. These patients, we were using the ERAS protocol. At times, we're doing better than our patients with much smaller surgery. You would think that this person would be doing much better than this. So that's when we said, it has to be this set of protocols that ERAS, tenants of ERAS, it works better.
1: One of the articles I read suggested that 95% of surgery in the U.S. are not ERAS-based at this point. If indeed that's an accurate statistic, do you think there's also resistance from hospital systems, perhaps in terms of cost, that the cost savings don't show up for a while, so they are very sensitive to investing in, in the short term?
2: First of all, statistic 95% that's to say that statements are not ERAS based. I think it would be interesting to know in that study what they're considering ERAS. Maybe it's not completely all of the ERAS protocol together, but I would say a much larger percentage utilize at least some ERAS protocol. Very rarely are we doing the eight hours anymore. Most of the time, it's the two hours with liquid. And that's one of the tenets of ERAS. In regards to the cost, I think that historically, it is difficult to overcome the cost effectiveness of opiates they're very cheap. And a lot of the medications that we utilize are not as cheap. In a bundled payment system, you run into problems where those medication costs can come to significant totals. I think that overall, hospital systems are very much focusing a lot on things like readmissions and complication rates and things like that, ERAS protocols in general. That's one of the reasons why they're successful. A lot of times have been shown to reduce those types of risks. I think that, yes, utilization of broad multimodal protocols has some financial disincentives because they are more expensive than opioids alone. But I think that over time, I think that the decreased readmissions and the decreased complications and decreasing length of stays and things like that from just like reducing ileus and things such as that and getting better pain control, I think that in the long term that starts to overcome those costs. Historically, I think that we've focused on the cost of healthcare being from admission to discharge. And realistically, that cost is probably a much wider space from the time that someone is not functioning at full capacity. That cost sometimes much larger than just the time that they're under the care of a hospital. When you start to look at the broad strokes, one of my biggest fears, specifically the utilization of non-opioids. If you misapply it, to the wrong patient. I've had very, very interesting discussions with pain management physicians, with chronic pain advocates. This problem is so multifactorial and there are so many people in so much pain for so many reasons across this whole spectrum of the epidemic. From the pain epidemic to the opioid epidemic to the overdose crisis, so many people being negatively affected. It would be really nice if there was a simple solution, but I really don't think there is. And I think that when you try to apply an overly simplified solution to a very complex problem, unfortunately, there are people that end up becoming the unintentional victims. I'm sincerely scared right now that may be what's happening. We have overdose rates are just skyrocketing. Are we driving patients to seek pain control on their own and, and leaving these patients in pain? And that's what's driving. That's one of my biggest fears. My views on this have drastically evolved. The deeper and deeper you get into this, as, as you guys know, the more complex it gets. It's going to take a concerted effort across many, many factors. Pain control is a big ally, and it's definitely not the silver bullet that some people try to make it out to be.
1: Dr. Luke Elms, thanks so much for sharing all this important information that shows, without a doubt, ERAS is certainly something that can be a very useful tool in our struggle with the opioid epidemic. Thank you. Thanks for
0: having me.